0: Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth. And today with me, my special guest is John Backus. Welcome, John. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Wayne. Good to be here. Great to have you. A little background on John. He's based in the National Capital Region, Washington, D.C., our hometown. And he's a seasoned technology investor and entrepreneur with over two decades of experience in investing and managing rapidly growing companies. Before he became a venture capitalist, which is what we're gonna talk about mostly today, he founded or co-founded US Order, which revolutionized online banking, went public in 1995 and ultimately was sold to Visa. He serves on the board of directors of the Center for Public Policy Innovation and the Colorectal Cancer Alliance. He also served for many years on the National Venture Capital Association and he's chairman emeritus of the Northern Virginia Technology Council, NVTC, here in Northern Virginia. He's also served as a technology policy advisor to former Governor Gilmore of Virginia, Warner, and McDonnell, and has contributed his views to the Washington Post, TechCrunch, Fortune, VentureBeat, and the Huffington Post. And he is a graduate, both undergraduate and MBA, of Stanford University. So, What an accomplished resume. How did you get into venture capital? How did you become a venture capitalist, John?
1: Boy, great question. I I get versions of that question all the time from people who try to break into the industry. And what I tell people is, venture capital is a small industry. It's a cottage industry. You know, maybe there are seven to 10,000 total venture funds in the US. 80%, 90% of those are solo practitioners you know, maybe you've got 15 20,000 professionals. It's a tiny industry, but it's a tiny industry with a lot of clout. So the way I got into it was I had some success early on in my career. And after the company that I co-founded with three other people went public, you know, I'd made a little bit of money. Uh, I wanted to help others start businesses. And venture capital was a natural way of doing that. So I was able to raise my first venture fund in the late 90s, you know, with some of my own money, but a lot of other people's money. And, you know, we did some good things, raised a couple more funds along the way, but that's how I broke in.
0: Awesome. Now, you were on the West Coast for most of the beginning of your life and career. What brought you to the East Coast?
1: I got acquired. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you can choose where you move. Sometimes, you know, you choose to get moved, and you you could either go with it or you don't. And I uh uh I went to Stanford Undergrad and Business School, as you talked about. I worked at Bain and Company early on in the California office, not the Boston office. And then when Bain Capital was getting uh getting up and running off the ground, I was plucked out of the consulting ranks and Plopped into their first company, which was a tiny little airline in Salt Lake City, Utah, that basically, we couldn't talk about it at the time, basically it supported the stealth program. We flew pilots and mechanics and other people up to a secret place in the desert where they were testing all of these long before they got unveiled to the public. And uh, we built that company up from 5 million to 50 million in a couple of years. We sold it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually sold it to a company called World Airways which had moved its headquarters back to Virginia. And so I moved back to Virginia with the acquisition, and I've been here ever since.
0: So how would you distinguish the East Coast VC world from the West Coast VC world? You know, it's it's an obvious question. I expect an obvious answer, but maybe I'll get surprised.
1: Well, you know, there are fewer of us on the East Coast, (laughs) and we are much less concentrated. You know, I would say on the West Coast, you've got 90% of all of the VCs are in a couple of zip codes between San Jose and San Francisco. You got a sprinkling in LA and San Diego and, you know, in Seattle and a little bit in between. But, you know, most of them are, it's highly concentrated. You know, you can't go to a golf course and not see a VC anywhere in, in the Bay Area. Here, it's a bit more of a unique profession. You know, there are probably maybe 100 people that do what I do in the greater Washington area. I mean, it could be 50, could be 150, but it's not thousands. Whereas in the Valley, there are literally probably 10,000 people in a couple of zip codes. So, wow. you know, there's just a lot fewer of us.
0: Is that Does that mean, does that equate to many more opportunities for venture capital in the Bay Area as opposed to here?
1: Uh, so I think, you know, uh, firms and people follow the activity. Historically, 90% of venture money was deployed in Northern California, Boston, and New York. The other 10% was deployed everywhere else in the country. The greater Washington area is a top 10 place for startups to receive venture capital, but we receive one hundredth of the dollars that are deployed annually in silicon valley so even though we're top 10 you know we're a distant you know seven or eight compared to number one so you know on a per capita basis the deal flow is probably similar when you look at what i mean per capita i mean number of entrepreneurs per vc or per dollar but venture capital is also something that unless you're at the very very startup earliest stages of venture capital Capital is agnostic, capital is everywhere. You know, Capital doesn't have to be in your backyard. It does if you're brand new and starting a business because you're gonna need some hands-on help. But as the business grows, you can get capital from anywhere.
0: Got it. Now, you're, you've started a new fund or a, 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 an additional fund called Proof. Tell us a little bit about Proof's focus, its uh, its mission and the types of portfolio companies that you're investing in in proof?
1: Sure. Thanks for asking, Wayne. So venture the venture business model has been something that I always struggled with. I was an economics major and, and I understand finance pretty well. And the whole underpinning behind venture, and no venture capitalist ever puts this in a pitch deck, but it is what it is, is you have to be lucky to some degree. and Professor Josh Lerner, who runs the private uh, private equity venture capital program at Harvard Business School, proved out the 80-20 rule in venture. And what he proved out was that 20% of the companies in a venture capitalist portfolio drive all the return. The other 80% return capital, which means if you have 25 companies in a portfolio, five are going to drive all your return. The other 20 are, frankly, forgettable. And You know, that's why I say it involves some luck. You know, you got to make sure you have five or seven as opposed to one or two. You've got to make sure those five are big enough to make up for all of the underperformers. So as a a result, in venture, you have this mindset of let's swing for the fences. We We have to invest in everything that can possibly be a home run or a grand slam because we can't make up for the losers by doing bunts and walks and base hits, to use a baseball analogy. Right. And I always kind of struggled with that. I'm like, you know, you, you wouldn't invest in public equities and expect that 80% of your portfolio is kind of like a loser or, or maybe right. it earns money. You know, you want to do better. So what we imagined with Proof was a different way to construct a portfolio where a vast majority of your companies can be meaningful contributors and a smaller number are going to be losers. And uh the way we have built our portfolio, and we're on our third fund right now, is we we figured out something that is, is obvious, but the, but how to solve for it was not obvious. What's obvious is that it's a small number of companies that drive all the return. The other thing that's obvious is those companies are not clear winners when they first get started, but after two, three, or four, or five years, it's pretty clear. Facebook, for example, in its third round of financing, had 13 different funds putting term sheets down to lead the financing round. One new firm was able to make that investment. The other 12 were sitting left on the sidelines. What we figured out was the trick is not trying to guess which one's going to be a big winner when it first starts up. The trick to solve is how do you get access to those great companies when they're a little bit more obvious? And how do you get in when everyone's competing to get in? So that was our angle, and the way we solved that was we said, let's work with the little venture groups that wrote those first checks that have the legal right to put more money into it. It's an anti-dilution right called the pro rata right, and when they catch a tiger by the tail, and when they want to put more money in, but they're out of capital, we will be their capital partner, we will write the check they're entitled to write, and we will share half of our economics with them we basically pay them to get into their best deals it lets us build if you think of sort of you know the legacy music industry before we streamed every song you actually bought albums whether you bought them on (laughs) records or cds or you know whatever you bought them on sets 12 or 13 songs at a time you know we're constructing a venture fund portfolio that's like a greatest hits portfolio Instead of like a classic record that has two or three songs you really love and a bunch of other ones, which is like a venture portfolio, we're building a portfolio that's a greatest hits portfolio.
0: How do you identify the greatest hits?
1: So we work with about 125 small VCs and we get the word out on what we're looking for. They bring, you know, generally their best deals to us. You know, they'll bring some good with the great, but they bring a lot of great to us. We pit, you know deal one against deal two. And, you know, we're investing in about one company for every 40 to 50 that we see. And uh, what we do is, you know, every every 40 to 50 we see, we winnow it down, we probably talk about 20 in investment committee, and we end up investing in one of them.
0: Wow, that's a really small percentage of the number of companies that you see. And and what are the criterion that you're using that says that one out of the 40 is the one that yep. we want?
1: So we look at things through, through two lenses. Lens number okay. one is, is it a great company? For us, a great company has a couple of characteristics. Number one, it's a real business. So we're looking for what's called product market fit, meaning it's got a working product that is selling to paying customers. Okay. Number two, we're looking for a company that is number one or number two in its category. What you learn in venture is that the top two companies get 80 to 90 percent of the the market value creation of the business and the rest split the remainder. The third thing we're looking for is high growth. We're looking for companies growing 100 percent plus a year. That's a high bar, but high growth also provides valuation insurance. You know, when the markets wobble or go down like they have in the last nine months, You know, if the business doubles in size and the market's down by a third, you're going to be just fine. And then the fourth thing we look for on the company is fundamentally good business metrics. You know, we want to understand what's the cost to acquire a customer? How quickly do you pay that back? What's the lifetime value of a customer? How much cash does the business have? You know, will it get profitable on the cash that it has? Those four things define for us. Is it a good business? The second side is, is it a good investment? And we do something pretty unique here. Uh, obviously, we look at what's the valuation relative to public comps. A lot of people haven't done that in the last few years and the public comps were a little out of whack. Uh, right. But we also wanna look at who's leading the financing round. We want a top brand name firm, You know, whether it's a strategic like QED in our backyard or a brand name on Sand Hill Road like Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia. We want a brand name leading the round giving the guidance in the boardroom. And then the, the last thing we look for on the investor side is we want to look at competed deals. We want to invest in companies that have those three, four, five, six term sheets. We don't invest in companies that are working the phones trying to raise money. So Got it. you know, it's, it's sort of like you know, you, you, you know the bank wants to lend you money when you don't need the money. We want to invest <laughs> in companies that are turning away money. So that, that's what we look for.
0: The um the the effect of this uh, of this process that you've built, how has that fared for proof one and proof two? How how have those funds
1: uh, yes, done? Yes, it's, it's been great. Work? You know, we're we modeled the portfolio out at sort of seventy percent winners, thirty percent. You know, I, I hate to say losers, but you know, companies that that don't meet our expectations. Right now we're running about 90% winners and about 10% underperformers. So it's working out better than we thought. This year, uh, this is is kind of a shocker to us. This year, which has been a a pretty bad year in the public markets and a bad year in private markets as well, we have nine companies that have raised outside financing at a higher price than they did in the years before against only two companies that have raised money at a lower price. So, you know, nine for 11 that have gone back to the market is a pretty good ratio. And it's a heck of a lot better than my private stock, my public stock portfolio.
0: No, mine too. The, um, The VC market as a whole, the private equity market as a whole, where do you see it headed in 2022, the rest of 2022, and then obviously ahead in 2023? Do you have any any prognostications or feelings about where, where we might be headed, sure. particularly if there's a recession?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, we do. And uh, I'll preface it by saying, you know, I lived through the 2000 correction as a venture capitalist. I lived through 2008 as a venture capitalist. To pause for a moment, there's kind of a scary thought, which is any VC under 40 has never lived through a correction. That's kind of scary to think about because the last one was 14 years ago. Uh, so the past isn't a perfect predictor of the future, but it tends to give you patterns that if you pay attention, you can pay attention to, uh, we believe that what's happening and what will continue to happen is a dispersion in the companies. And you're going to have a small group of companies, you know, call it the best of the best that will be able to raise money at up round prices at a higher price because everyone wants to get into them. You know, in in times of uncertainty, you want safety, and safety is in the best companies. And I think that's part of the reason we have so many markups in our portfolio is we have that greatest hits portfolio of a lot of great companies. On the other extreme, you're going to have companies that, uh, you know, really are struggling. And those companies just are not going to raise more money. And that's good for the ecosystem. That's healthy. You know, you need to have... You know, you need just like every forest needs to you know, get rid of its undergrowth. You know, we need to get rid of a lot of companies in the ecosystem that were funded that maybe shouldn't have been or that have struggled. So we'll probably have 20 percent of the companies out there in the next couple of years that just aren't going to make it. And then in the sure. middle, you've got the vast majority. The middle is going to break into two groups. Number first group is those companies that have to raise money that are out of cash. And the second group is those that don't need money. The ones that don't need money, this is a non-event for them. If they've got four years of cash, (coughs) they're going to sail right through this. The companies that need to raise money, they're going to hope for a flat round, and many of them are going to see down rounds. doesn't mean the company's underperforming. It means that the last money they raised was, frankly, overvalued, and to us, that creates buying opportunities.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And um, I guess the, the only last question I had, and you sort of alluded to this at the very beginning was, if somebody wants to get into the VC world, what's the best place to start?
1: So I, I, I do get that question a lot. There's basically <laughs> three ways to get into venture capital. The first way is the traditional track would be you come in as an analyst out of college, or you come in as an associate out of business school. And those, you know, those are sort of tried and true tracks. You know, not a lot of people start that way just because it's a small industry. The second two tracks are uh, you go to work for a startup and, you know, the startup does well. You get noticed by a couple of the VCs that are in the boardroom and they look and say, we want that person on our team. They've got a really good nose for investments. And so you, you kind of start in the startup ecosystem and you get noticed. And the mm-hmm. other way to do it is the way I did it, which is, you know, if you're a little bit later in your career, you've had some success, you can start your own fund, you know, with your own money. And a lot of people right. are doing that at a much younger age now by building their own investing track record on AngelList or other places where that track record can be audited and, you know, deploying, you know, 5 10 15 20 $25,000 into a bunch of different companies and if you can prove convincingly to investors that you've got a good auditable track record, you know that can get you in business.
0: So your your model is looking for other VCs that are really leading rounds with companies that are doing okay already or doing really well already. And so you, they need additional capital. You're going to help that lead VC raise that capital and share the upside with them.
1: Sort of. We we're not really working with the lead VC. We're working with the small VC that's already in the business. So okay. you know, the example, the way I would look at it is, you know, if you have a little twenty-five million dollar fund that bought ten percent of a company three or four years ago, and they've put two million dollars into that company, they now have eight percent of their fund in that one company. They're not going to go much higher than that. But if the company right. goes out and raises a $50 million round, they've got the right to invest 10% of that or $5 million, which they'll never do out of a $25 million fund. We want to see, you know, Sequoia, Andreessen, Benchmark, Union Square, right. fill in the blank, leading the round. And we with our partner will sort of raise our hand and say, we want to take our full $5 million pro rep. And, you know, they can take the other $45 million.
0: Well, thank you so much for this education for all of us today on Blueprint for Wealth and telling us about not only your background and what Proof is doing, but where you think the VC market is headed, because there's a lot of uncertainty out there and a lot of people who are scared and afraid. Uh, but you know, behind the scenes, the private equity world and VC world keeps growing and investing and growing companies in America. And so we thank you for that as well. And uh, thanks for being a special guest today.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth. And join us next time for a special guest and educational moment. And stay tuned for a short educational moment that may be of interest to you. Hi, this is Wayne Zell. And welcome to a Blueprint for Wealth educational moment brought to you by Zell Law an estate and business planning firm located in Reston, Virginia, serving clients all across the country. But before we start on our topic today, let me tell you a little bit about the book from which this topic derives. Today's topic is Private Equity Buyers, and it's excerpt from our new book coming out in March of 2023 called Your Multi-Million Dollar Exit the Entrepreneur's Business Succession Planner. And it is written by yours truly, and hopefully you all will enjoy the book. Today's topic, we're going to focus on the private equity buyer's focus. We're going to focus on the types of investment the private equity buyer engages in. And we're going to focus on the two-step structure that most private equity buyers employ. Private equity buyers focus on investments, that will yield significant financial returns to their investors over a specific time. They usually want to ensure your business will succeed on its own without continued involvement or additional investment beyond the initial purchase. At the same time, the best PE buyers have experience in investing in other similarly sized and situated businesses in your industry. They know the risks inherent in your business, and they hopefully understand what a successful business looks like when they're evaluating you as a target. Private equity buyers come in so many shapes and sizes that it's hard to describe a typical PE firm. Trillions of dollars have been invested in private equity funds, and the trend continues to increase, even as as the stock market returns ebb and flow. As investment dollars come in, the PE firm has to deploy these dollars to acquire acquire portfolio companies or build platforms within an industry to achieve their investment strategies, which may be myriad and diverse. Undoubtedly, if you are a rocket ship of a business, there's an investment strategy and a PE investor out there for your business if it's growing and has the right components. Even with increased volatility in the public markets, P.E. investments have expanded dramatically into the 21st century. Some P.E. buyers are focused on your customer list, contracts, or technologies that may yield additional synergies with other portfolio companies they manage. In that case, the P.E. buyer may be less interested in retaining your workforce and more interested in capitalizing on expanding product and service offerings to the customer base of their portfolio companies. In other cases, PE investors will insert their own managers and board members to run the target's business. Even if you've been successful in running and growing your business over time, the private equity firm may think that they can do better. There seems to be a bias among some private equity managers as to how to properly run a business they acquire. If they're successful in taking portfolio companies to the next level, They may know what they're talking about. However, if they're getting into a new industry or purchasing your company as the cornerstone of a new platform into which they will combine other similar companies, their focus on your assets and lack of focus on your people may not yield the best results. PE deals often involve a two-step process. In the first step, The PE firm acquires between 20 to 90% of your company. You're expected to roll over some of your purchase price into equity of the acquiring company. The structures of these transactions can be very complex, but the outcome generally is the same. If you're going to accept a stake in the buyer's business, you need to ask whether and when you're going to be able to sell that stake to re- reap the benefits of the rollover equity portion of the transaction. Private equity buyers want to hold on to your business and grow it until they achieve a certain return on investment they've promised their investors. Here's an example. Recently, Jack sold his business to a PE firm, and less than a year later, the PE firm found a buyer for the business along with several other similarly situated businesses that allowed Jack to quadruple his investment in the rollover equity he received in the original deal. Either the original sale price was too low, and Jack should have been more careful in deciding on the original sale price, or the PE firm was able to unleash or reveal additional value to a potential buyer that resulted in benefits not only to the PE firm, but obviously to the rollover investors, including Jack. And not all deals end this way. You need to try to negotiate protections in your rollover investment documents to allow you to realize the benefits of the rollover equity. There's plenty of PE funding available to fuel acquisitions and investments. If the economy turns down dramatically as it did in 2008 and 2009, then multiples will drop and the availability of businesses to be sold at high multiples will decline. Nonetheless, sellers still may be willing to sell their businesses even at lower values. The question will be whether the P.E. buyer or investor is the right exit for you. If you want to learn more about P.E. buyers and exit planning and planning your business succession, you're going to want to stay tuned for the release of our book scheduled for early 2023, your multi-million dollar exit, the Entrepreneur's Business Succession Planner. Thanks for listening to this educational moment on Blueprint for Wealth, and stay tuned for more educational moments that will hopefully help you realize your dreams of wealth and freedom. I'm Wayne Zell. Have a great week.